So in 1 Samuel 17, verse 39, it says, David fastened on his sword over the tunic. He tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his hand, his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. I want to use that scripture, and I want to talk from this subject in our time together today. This doesn't fit. This, clap your hands if you're ready for God's word. This doesn't fit. I want to start this sermon with a statement that I think is extremely important, but might be a bit unsettling. And here it is for my note takers. How far you go and how much you grow is not just determined by what you believe about God. It's equally impacted by what you believe about you. I'm going to say that one more time. How far you go and how much you grow is not just determined by what you believe about God, but it is equally impacted by what you believe about you. The scriptures frame it this way in the book of Proverbs. As a man or woman thinks in his heart, so is he. Another way of looking at that is this. You will always behave in a way that is consistent with the way you see yourself. Meaning that there is potential and possibility that there is a gap and a disconnect and inconsistency between the way God sees you and the way you see yourself. Which may be why all throughout scripture we see God regularly and repeatedly telling you who you are. Telling you you are head, not the tail. Telling you you are above only, not beneath. Telling you that you're not just a conqueror, but you're more than a conqueror. Telling you that you are anointed, beloved, selected, predestined, ordained, protected, that you are his. And he's doing that regularly and repeatedly because he's trying to get what you think about you to align with what he thinks about you so that you can behave in a way that's consistent with what he thinks about you and and not what you think about yourself. Because you will always behave in a way that is consistent with how you see you. And this is an arena and an area of attention for the adversary. And I'm going to say this, because when the enemy cannot change what you think about God, his next step is to try to change what you think about you. Did you hear what I just said? (laughs) I said, when the enemy cannot change what you think about God, His next step is to attempt to change what you think about you. But I've got good news. They will say this in the church I grew up in, in Kilmichael, Mississippi. They will say that the devil is a liar. (laughs) What does that mean? This is what that means practically, guys. This is what that means practically. It doesn't mean he doesn't tell the truth. It means he can't tell the truth. The Bible says the truth is not even in him. So that means whatever he is saying to you about you means that the exact opposite of that is true. 
So whenever he starts planting thoughts into your mind about your inadequacy and your insufficiency and what can't happen and what won't happen, that's not the time to have a pity party. That's the time to have a praise party because if he's saying you're not going to make it, the truth is you're getting ready to make it. If he's saying it's not going to happen, the truth is it's getting ready to happen. If he's saying it's, you're not going to recover, the truth is you are going to recover. And this is what I've learned. I've learned that the same enemy that is at work in creating attitudes of arrogance is the same enemy that is at work in creating attitudes of inadequacy. Did you hear what I just said? I said the same enemy that is at work in creating attitudes of arrogance is the same one that's at work in creating attitudes of inadequacy. And many times in religious spaces, our obsession is addressing arrogance. We've got to kill pride. We've got to make sure people don't think more highly of themselves than they ought. And I'm not saying that's incorrect. I'm saying if you stop there, that's incomplete. Because when you look throughout scripture and you read it objectively, what you will see is the enemy has used inadequacy to assassinate just as many callings as arrogance. As a matter of fact, we don't get to see a lot of people's calling experience in the Bible. We do get to see a few. And in almost every instance, before people would accept who God's called them to be and what God's called them to do, God had to talk them out of inadequacy. In almost every occasion, when he called Moses. Moses' inadequacy responded and said, you calling me to the front. I don't do that front stuff. I do the back stuff. When he called a gentleman named Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, I'm too young. I, I don't have the experience. When he called Gideon, Gideon said, I don't come from the family pedigree and lineage to be able to do that. All throughout scripture, you see, in Numbers 13, we see an example of people who did not possess the promised land in Canaan because they saw themselves as grasshoppers. They didn't lose to the giants in the land. They lost to the grasshopper in their head. They didn't lose because they saw the giants wrong. They lost because they didn't see themselves right. And I think in our obsession with addressing pride and making sure that we walk in humility and making sure that we don't think too highly of ourselves than we ought, we have completely ignored an area where the enemy is at work assassinating assignments and killing callings and ruining people's lives, not because they're thinking too high of themselves, but because they're thinking too low of themselves. Listen to me. This is the way one writer framed it. One writer put it this way. Arrogance doesn't come from knowing who you are and knowing what you can do. Arrogance comes when you forget who gave you that ability. Here's, here's the premise. Here's the thrust. I got a few minutes left, but I'm really trying to say one thing today. Here it is. Accomplishing 
your life's assignment requires embracing your unique identity. Amen. Amen. Am I making sense? Because those of you that are watching, there, those of you in this room, and there are things that are put on your heart. You've got desires. You've got passions. You've got promptings. You've got dreams. There are thing, things that you feel stirred and nudged to do. And some of those desires are divine. They might, even feel, they might not even feel divine, but they're divine because the scriptures teach that God gives us desires of our heart. Now, the psalmist is not saying that he gives you everything your heart wants because the Bible also says that the heart is deceitful. It is there anybody, you can look back over your life and say, there's some things my heart wanted that weren't good for my life. There are some people your heart wanted that weren't good for your life. Come on. Right. So, so he's not just saying he gives your heart everything it wants. He's saying he gives your heart what to want. And there are some things that you want that I don't want. And the reason you want them and I don't want them is because you're called to them and I'm not. So God knows in order for you to do what you're called to do, he's got to give you a want to. And in order for me to do what I'm called to do, he's got to give me a want to. But this requires embracing your unique identity. And so purpose is not just accomplished. I don't think we can talk about this purpose subject enough because it's the only way you get fulfillment. It's the only way to fulfillment. Fulfillment does not come from the acquisition of possessions. It doesn't come from accomplishments and accolades because once you get a new thing, the new thing becomes an old thing and then the, the, the old thing doesn't excite you anymore the way it did when it was new. God has wrapped your fulfillment into purpose so that the only way you actually get it is by chasing it. That every other accomplishment and achievement will at some point no longer impact us the same way because he said, I've hidden your fulfillment and purpose. And your purpose is not just accomplished by doing something. It's accomplished by becoming someone. By becoming yourself. Which means recognizing what armor doesn't fit you. And one of the most amazing examples of this is seen in a story in the Bible regarding a gentleman named David and a giant named Goliath. Now, I want you to see something here. I, I really want you to see something. We picked up a part of this story in chapter number 17. But to really understand the essence of what I'm getting ready to articulate, we've got to pick up in chapter 16 because this is when David's story begins. It doesn't begin in chapter 17. It begins in chapter 16 when God speaks to this religious and civil leader named Samuel, and he's, who was a kingmaker, and he says to Samuel, Samuel, how long... Will you mourn over the fact that I'm removing Saul to be king? Who saw? Saul was a king that Samuel had selected. But over a period of time, he became a king that God rejected. And so Samuel sees now that Saul's not making the right decisions. He's not safe to be king anymore. And so God now has to make a selection of someone else who will be safe to shepherd God's people as king. But Samuel still has an emotional attachment to something God's done with. 
So God asks um, Samuel, he says, so how long are you going to nurture this emotional attachment to something I'm done with? How long are you going to keep reminiscing over a season, season that I'm not allowing you to revisit? How long are you going to wish things would go back to the way they were instead of embracing the way they can be? It's God saying to Samuel, he's not being trite, he's not being disrespectful. It's his way of saying, hey, if you will stop talking about and reflecting on what you lost, I can start talking to you about what you're getting ready to gain. <laughs> if you will stop focusing on what didn't happen, I can start talking to you about what's getting ready to happen. If you will stop focusing on who walked out of your life, I'm going to start talking to you about who's getting ready to come into your life. And I'm telling you, Samuel, what's coming is better than what's been. The best is not behind you. The best is in front of you. So, so how long are you going to mourn over that which I rejected? So he says, I want you to go down to Jesse's house because I've selected my king. So Samuel goes down to this man named Jesse's house. He says, Jesse, you got any sons? Jesse said, yep. He said, call him because the next king's here. So Jesse calls seven of his sons. Here's the problem. He only calls seven, but he has eight. So he calls the first one, and the first one walks up, and Samuel looks at him and says, Oh, he looked like a king. Surely this is, this is the king. And God speaks to Samuel and says, Nah, man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. Meaning the criteria you use to determine who should do what is not the criteria I use to determine who should do what. Let me rephrase it. The criteria people use to determine who's worthy of what is not the criteria God uses to determine who's worthy of what. <laughs> the criteria that people have regarding who God can use is not the criteria God has when it comes to him selecting who he will use. So this first son comes, God says, that's not it. Second one comes, that's not it. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh come. God said, that's not it. So now Samuel's confused. He says, Jesse, are these all your sons? He says, I got one more, but I know he's not it. Samuel said, call for him. So David comes, and the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, this is the one. I want you to see something. Seven people. Get to Samuel before David. Seven people get exposed to the opportunity before David. Are y'all following me? Okay. Seven people get to interview before David. 
Seven people get to apply before David. But when God has assigned and ordained something for David, it doesn't matter who gets there first. God will hold it in place until you get there. And I want to talk to some people who feel like you've missed some opportunities. You feel like you're behind schedule. You feel like other people are ahead of you. You feel like you should be further than you are right now. I want you to know when God has something for you, it doesn't matter who gets there first. He will hold it in place until you get there. So... David comes and Samuel anoints him with this horn of oil. I mean, this, 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 this horn is full, full of oil. He anoints him as a sign and a symbol as God's ownership, his empowerment, and his presence. He anoints him, right? And um, then he leaves. This is what's dope, though. When he anoints him, he anoints him. So interesting. First Samuel 16, 13 says, he anoints him in the presence of his brothers. So all seven of them who got there first had to watch him. Get oil they wanted. So important. People that didn't, and when you understand some of the backstory here, which I don't have time to get into, there wasn't the greatest relationship between David and his brothers. So the same people that didn't think he was worthy of it, the same people that didn't think he deserved it, the same people that felt like they should have got it were the same people that had to watch him get it. And this is a powerful picture of divine recompense. See, God's vengeance is not punishing or hurting your enemies. God's vengeance is empowering you to succeed in spite of what they did to you. And their punishment is having to watch you win. So he gets anointed as king, but the Bible says Samuel leaves. This is confusing. So David's sitting there all oily and greasy, and Samuel leaves. The text says he goes to remind. I'm like, okay, David's probably sitting there like, wait a minute. You just anointed me to be king, right? That means I'm next, right? So why are you leaving and not taking me with you? You're going to send an Uber back to get me and um, bring me to the palace? Watch what happens here. He's got a king's anointing. So his ability has changed. But he has to go back to doing what he was doing before they called him, which was tending to his father's sheep. So his responsibility hadn't changed. So he's in a season where his ability doesn't match his responsibility. And I know everybody can't relate to this, but I believe there are some people online, just a few people in this room that can look back to a season in your life. Some of you might be in that season right now where if, if you were honest, if you were emotionally honest, you would say, I feel like I'm in a season where my ability and my responsibility don't match. That there's way more in me than what I'm seeing right now. There's a gap between David's ability and his responsibility. 
it's like, man, my, my skills and my opportunity don't match. This is what I call the God gap. And that gap exists not because something's wrong. That gap exists because something's right. That gap doesn't exist because God's displeased with you. That gap exists because God loves you. That gap exists because God, because God loves you so much that he wants to get you ready for what you think you're ready for, even though you're not ready for it, but you're ready for it. <laughs> God says, you're ready for this. You're like, yes. He's like, but you're not ready for this. So I love you too much to give you something that you're ready for in terms of your excitement and enthusiasm, but not ready for in terms of the development that needs to take place in you to become the kind of person that can handle the kind of pressure that comes with being King David. See, this God gap is a gap in time where God says, you got the skills and you've got the gifting and you've got the capability, but there are some other X factors that determine your success in this role. And I want to use this gap to address those X factors so that when you get to where I'm taking you, it feels like a blessing and not a curse. Because this is, this is what happens. See, Jesus puts it this way. He says, to whom much is given, much is required. I, I, I put it this way. There's a front side and a back side to everything. And when we say we're ready for something, oftentimes what we mean is I'm ready for the front side. I want to be king. That's the front side. I get to sit in the chair. That's the front side. People serve me. That's the front side. What I say goes. That's the front side. I got influence. That's the front side. But then there's also a back side. If it all goes bad, it's on me. I never get a break. Everybody wants something from me. Right? See, there's no promotion without pressure. Promotion, front side. Pressure, back side. There's no notoriety, more fans, without more haters. Fans front side, haters back side. Am I making, am I making sense? There's no light without heat. There's heat under the lights. Front side, back side. And God says, you know what? I love you so much. What I'm doing is I'm delaying. I'm delaying your assimilation into what I've assigned you to. And I'm letting you live in a God gap because what I want to do is I want to use this time to prepare you for the backside. You're ready for the front side, but I want to make sure you're ready for the backside. So I'm going to put a gap between your ability and your responsibility so you can handle the backside of this. So through a series of events, David is shepherding his dad's sheep through a series of events. He starts working for Saul in the palace as a musician. Saul has no idea that David is going to be his replacement. He likes him so much as a person. He says, I don't want you to just be a musician. I want you to be. There's so much leadership stuff in there, right? Because eventually he's going to be the most influential person in the palace. But he has to start off being willing to play the harp for the king. So this is so interesting. Series of events, Saul likes him so much, he makes him an armor bearer, a person that bared and carried the king's armor. But David still would go back home and tend to his father's sheep from time to time. 
So he'd go home and tend to his father's sheep. He'd go to work. He'd go home to attend to his father's sheep and go to work. And so one day he was leaving the sheep, getting ready to go to work. And his father said, I want you to take this food to your brothers. They're in the military. They're on the front line. Take this food to them. So David is taking food to his brothers. And while he's doing so, he's hearing these insults. He's hearing all this yapping, somebody talking real spicy. He's, he's, hearing, he's hearing someone insulting God and insulting Israel. And it's this giant named Goliath. And so David walks up and he's like, so um, nobody hear that? <laughs> am, I on, am, am, am I the only one hearing that? This is what I call unique agitation. You know how I just said earlier, there's some things that you want that I don't want? And that's God at work. There are also, th also some things that break your heart that don't break mine. That's God too. Are you hearing what I'm saying, right? Yeah, so we all have these unique agitations. And, and here can be the thing. When you mismanage that, you'll try to impose yours on others. Why don't you love this like I love this? Because there's something else I love that, that you don't love. And the reason this bothers you is because that's a unique agitation God's given you. Because purpose is an answer to a problem. And God will uniquely agitate you with the problems you've been created and crafted to solve. And so that's why it bothers you. So Goliath bothered David. Because David was called to address that giant. And there are some problems in the world that are breaking your heart. And you're wondering, why isn't it breaking everybody else's? <laughs> and God's like, because I might not have called them to do something about it. Maybe I've called you to do something about it. And then maybe when you start doing something about it, other people whose heart breaks for the same thing will have a path to follow. So, so David said, oh, y'all afraid to fight? I'm not. I'll fight him. He said, you'll fight? He said, yeah, I'll fight him. So he goes before King Saul. King's like, you gonna fight this guy? He's like, yeah. He's like, man, you can't do it. David said, listen, I was standing to my father's sheep. And there was a lion on one occasion and a bear on another occasion that came and tried to take my father's sheep. And God gave me the ability, the skill, the strategy to defeat the lion and to defeat the bear. And he says this, and the same God that delivered me out of the hand of the lion and the bear is the same God that will deliver this Philistine into my hands. See, when you're having trouble in your present, you got to draw on the lessons you learned in your past because all of us have some lions and some bear seasons, some circumstances and some situations in our past that could have taken us out and taken us under. But somehow, some way, the same God that did it back then will be the same God that can do it now. So he, here's the thing. Saul says, okay, well, if you're going to fight him, this is what you need to do. I got you. 
I'm going to give you the best. Take my armor. Take my sword. This is the best in Israel. And you're going to fight. And I want you to have the best. This is battle tested. This is the way we do it. Are y'all following me? Yeah, this is the way it's always been done. This is what everybody wears when they fight. These are the weapons that everyone uses when they fight. You got to do it this way because everybody does it this way. People have won battles doing it this way. Don't you want to win too? This is the way to win. And so David now puts on the king's armor and internally he's wrestling because he knows that even though this is the way it's been done, it's not the way he's been created to do it. So he's in a quandary here because he doesn't want to disrespect the king. Yet at the same time, he knows this doesn't fit me. And so David engages in what I believe to be the most courageous act in his life. To me, his most courageous act was not fighting Goliath. It was looking a king in the face and saying, I can't wear this. This doesn't fit. Woo. And how many of you in this room online are dealing with the pressure and the tension of wearing what culture is putting on you? What people you admire may be putting on you that doesn't fit you. This is the way it's been done. This is the way you have to do it. And there are many, I know it, that are in this room, you're watching online, you, you've been fighting what I call a holy discontent. Because you're wrestling with the tension of conforming to the expectations of those that you look up to, those that love you, those that you love. You're wrestling with that tension versus expressing your unique and authentic identity. So this is what the text says. I want you to notice all the pronouns in the text. We read it together. It says, so David took his, all throughout scripture, you see that, his, 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 his. It says, verse 40 here says, he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, 
with his sling in his hand and approached the Philistines. You see the his, the his, the his, the his, the his, the his, and you're trying to live life without the his. He says, I know swords are traditionally used in warfare, and I know shields have worked in the past, and I know armor is necessary, but that's not the way God wired me. I use rocks, and I just believe that my rock will work. <laughs> so David took that slingshot and the Bible says he approached that giant and Goliath is probably bracing himself because he's accustomed to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat. He's stronger than David, bigger than David, more experienced than David. And so he's preparing for hand-to-hand -hand combat and the next thing he knows, he looks up and here comes a rock coming in his direction. Watch this, hitting him in the only spot in his armor where he's vulnerable, right in his forehead. So the very thing, a rock that we thought put David at a disadvantage is the very thing that put him at an advantage when it came to Goliath. And I want to tell you that your weakness is not a weakness. Your weirdness is not a weirdness. Your rock has been designed to take out your giant and I want you to work your rock. I want you to sling your rock. I want you to be all that God has called you to be because your rock works. And today, I want to pray over you that God would free you from the grip of inadequacy. This is what I call emotional miracles, guys. Emo and emotional miracles are some of the most significant miracles because it's when God does a work in your heart that accelerates something that needs to be done quickly because you're in a season of life where you don't have the time to explore conventional methods to get that fixed. Some of you right now are in a season that's so critical for your life and you don't have years to get this fixed. So I'm going to pray that God works a miracle in your heart because you won't use your slingshot if you don't believe your rock works. But your rock is enough. So I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to pray for some things and I'm going to pray like Jesus taught us to pray, which is to pray against some things. In the model prayer, deliver us from evil. Pray against evil. So we're going to pray for some things and pray against some things because we believe God's going to work a miracle in your heart. So Father, I just thank you right now that your word says...